This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the centenary year of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Each week on the podcast, we look at some aspect of Bradbury's life and work and interview someone who is inspired by Ray. Welcome to another episode of Bradbury 100. Today we're going to look at the deceptively simple task of storytelling, in particular oral storytelling. And to help us with that topic is a really talented storyteller, Megan Wells, who is the artistic director of the Ray Bradbury Storytelling Festival. Before Megan joins us, I'd like to talk a little bit about the oral tradition of storytelling. We all know Bradbury as someone we read off the page, but I wonder how many people read his stories aloud. I've done it a bit, although I'm not particularly good at it, but there are plenty of Bradbury audiobooks out there, um, some of them read by Bradbury himself, some read by famous people, uh, William Shatner, Burgess Meredith, Leonard Nimoy, and various others, and some read by just your regular audiobook performer. And there have been readings of Bradbury stories on radio for decades. And it has to be said that some of the stories work better that way than others do. When you're reading a book or a magazine, you have the text right there in front of you, obviously. You can skip back and reread. But when you're hearing a story told to you, you can't do that. The story information comes at you at a pace that you, the listener, can't easily control. Megan Wells has some interesting things to say about this, and also about how when she's performing a story, she makes certain adjustments. It's really a form of adaptation, a bit like how you might change a story when you're making it into a play or a film. Now, if you've never read Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, well, firstly, why are you here? But secondly, you should probably stop listening right now, because there's a spoiler coming up. Okay, all those people have gone now. I can carry on. Uh, Because, of course, Fahrenheit 451 deals with the idea of books being read and books being memorised. At the end of Fahrenheit, it's pretty much accepted that the physical books, which are being burned by the firemen, are just not important in the grand scheme of things. The ideas matter, the words matter, but they transcend the physical text. Now, being all logical, we might question that. We might say, wait a minute, the memorisation won't be perfect. Orally transmitted stories are prone to error, and they certainly develop and grow with each telling. And this is exactly what the famous art critic Bernard Berenson suggested. Bradbury wrote about this in an essay in 2004, Remembrance of Books Past. According to Ray, Berenson asked him, wouldn't it be that all would be misremembered? None would come forth in their original garb. Wouldn't they be longer, shorter, taller, fatter, disfigured, or more beautiful? And this then sends Ray off in the essay on a flight of fancy where he wonders, would Usher fall but to rise again? And whether only every 
third word of Proust would be remembered. And he even considers the possibility of the memoriser being tempted to misremember boring characters. And he uses the example of Moby Dick there. He says, it could easily happen that the motion picture, rather than the book, is recalled. So the book would be lost and the film remembered. Moby Dick, you may recall, was written for the screen by a certain Ray Bradbury. At any rate, with Fahrenheit, Bradbury doesn't really go there, and rightly so. The epiphany of Fahrenheit, that books can be subversively carried around in people's heads, comes late in the story, and the consequence of any inaccuracy in the memorization would show up later, after the book people have restored civilization, after the book's over. Bradbury had no need to show us this, he had no need of a sequel. It's just not the story that he was interested in telling. But if you've seen the 1966 film version of Fahrenheit, you may remember a beautiful little scene there where a boy is learning a text by rote from his grandfather, or an old man at least, and it takes the boy a couple of goes to get the passage correct, and he's patiently corrected by the old man. But then the old man dies, and the snows come, and it ever so subtly implies that without the corrective of the old man, the boy is now on his own. Whatever version of the story he has committed to memory now is the story. And there's another adaptation of Fahrenheit which I've written about before, and that's a radio play for the BBC written by David Calcutt. In a couple of scenes in the play, and often just in the background, you become aware of things being chanted. Nursery rhymes, playground rhymes. You know, those things we all heard as a child, even though we have no idea where they come from, and sometimes no idea what they even mean. Ring a ring of roses. Which, by the way, proves the point about things evolving and developing when they're passed on as part of an oral tradition. Here in the UK, most kids know it as Ring a Ring a Roses, but elsewhere it's been remembered as Ring Around the Rosy. Well, now let's find out more about how listening to someone tell a story can be very different from reading that same story on the page. And we'll also learn something about Florence Nightingale, of all people. Here's my interview with Megan Wells. Joining me today on Bradbury 100 is storyteller Megan Wells. Megan is an award-winning story artist and theatre artist, and for many years has been the artistic director of the Ray Bradbury Storytelling Festival in Ray's hometown of Waukegan, Illinois. Perhaps we could start with the Storytelling Festival. Uh, if you could tell us something about it and how you first became involved. I think it was 14, 15 years ago, I was invited to the Waukegan Public Library to do a program on uh, Ray Bradbury's stories and walking in, of course, being Ray's hometown, that library has long been committed to their relationship with him. So I went and 
told stories from dandelion mine and the woman at the library elizabeth martin was her name then said we are going to have a festival she'd thought that telling stories from ray bradbury material might be good and then when she had the actual experience of hearing his chapters told rather than read she lit up so uh, the library contacted ray Ray was very excited about the idea, given a commitment to do it around October. It was very important to him that it be done in the season, the fall season, the Halloween season, and the library absolutely had no problem with that. So the library then went out and filmed with Ray in his office and interviewed him a little bit about Waukegan, if he had any memories of the Carnegie Library that he wanted to share. And Ray then granted me the right to tell his stories and to not record them. I can't record them out, sell them publicly. And then granted permission for the storytellers in the festival, if someone wanted to do a Ray Bradbury story for the festival, they had the right to do that for the festival and they couldn't then take it out and start selling it. So uh, there was a certain amount of carefulness, boundaries around the work, which is fantastic. I appreciate that. I respect that. So then I dove in, this was 14, 15 years ago. I dove in and I didn't do a Ray Bradbury every single year, uh, but I've been adding a Ray Bradbury. I think I've got, I got a snack here we, and we're on, a podcast, so you can't see them, but I got a good stack here of uh, chapters of Bradbury that I have brought alive into an oral experience. And we decided to do it by theme. So every year, the Ray Bradbury Storytelling Festival had a theme, literary monsters, literary space, literary ghosts, literary. And, you know, we try to work around that Halloween theme. And so then... Uh, a colleague of mine, Jim May, also got excited about the festival, and he started to tackle some of the Ray Bradbury works. And it was really fun to take a theme and then go look in his works to find that chapter that really illuminated the theme. And what about the different venues that the event has taken place in? Well, we began in the Genesee Theater in Waukegan, the restored Genesee Theater with that auditorium seats, a couple thousand huge restored a chandelier bigger than my office, beautiful space. It's where the Jack Benny show used to record from. The Genesee Theater was committed to the library's commitment to Ray and so made the rent reasonable and we would then bring in students from, I don't know how far our outreach was. The library really was incredible. And so all these students would fill in, 1,000, 1,500 students would fill in and we'd do a show in the afternoon for the students. And that was always so rewarding, Phil, to have, against all belief, have a room of 2,000 first, second, third, and fourth graders go silent where you could hear a pin in the auditorium with the power of words 
no screens, no big tanks shooting bombs, you know, just words in their imagination. Really very rewarding. And then in the evening, we would do an adult show. The attendance on that was smaller. I think 600 was the max we hit at some point. But then we were able to really do the deeper material. Last year, that changed. The Genesee changed hands. So we brought it back into the library, which is kind of cool, actually. I'm not disappointed. It's different, but it's right there in the library. And of course, the Ray Bradbury statue was opened at the library last year, dedicated, opened and dedicated outside the library. So we were inside those windows telling into the library with Ray's statue right through that window on the other side. I knew he was listening. Sort of overseeing all the events. Overseeing all the events, so. You referred to Ray giving you permission to tell his stories. So what's the difference from your point of view between telling a story and reading the story? Because I gather you don't read from the text. So tell us about that process. It's very different. The experience of drinking in a story through your eyes and taking a story in predominantly through the ear. And when you're reading, you start to stir up inner voices that then go into your ear. But it's word through eye translated to inner ear and a very a, a slower process. Once you get the cinema mounted, then it starts to really roll. If you hit a moment, you can go back and flip the page and catch up what you missed. That's the experience of reading. Now, when you read out loud, people don't have the pages. They can't go back. And they're attempting through your voice to mount the whole imaginal experience. Ray has written it to wake up voices inside their heads and they're hearing your voice. It's a lot of activity for the brain and the consciousness to do. Best reading, hearing reading, is, is to just sit very quiet and close your eyes, and then, then you can enter in. But even still, when you're listening to something read, there can be some experience of impatience. So storytelling says that your primary bridge into that imagination is the voice through the ears. So the task is to look at Ray Bradbury's beautiful piece and take away everything that doesn't travel well through the ear. And you know how Ray will sometimes do six metaphors in one paragraph. And uh, it's fabulous when you're reading because you can reread that paragraph six times like a geodesic dome and just turn and turn and turn and turn and turn and turn and you're like yeah I had to get a cup of coffee before I can go on you know but when you're listening to Ray your brain is going wait is it a is it a tree or is it a spaceship or is it a snail or is it a your you you bounce around his metaphors boom 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 trying to mount that all in your head and meantime the hypnosis of the story journey starts to fall down. You fall out, you get lost, and then the storyteller is like, 
trying to get you back. So you want to find that arc. What is the journey? What's the revelation that character is coming through? Because, of course, Ray is absolutely brilliant at character development. That's the priority. So the, so the listener gets to go on that ride experiencing that character and then trimming away too much description is too much. <laughs> Storytelling really is, it's not an ink drawing. It's more like connect the dots. You have to have six dots. No, they need eight. That's it. They've got it. Boom. It's in their head. No more, no more, no more. So it's definitely an editing process. It's very rarely a process of additions. Sometimes there may be a moment where a listener needs a little more time before moving on to the next paragraph. A clearer, he said, she said, those sorts of things. Sometimes you have to take his order and make it different because when you're listening through the ear, uh, here's an example. The wind was blowing harshly as the door opened for the dog. So first you see the wind, then you see a door, and then you see a dog. So that's almost backwards in the head as you're listening. That's a hard picture for someone to mount in their imagination when listening. So a storyteller's task is to try to introduce the most potent part of the image first and then add to it so the listener gets it and then adjusts it and refines it. It's more like focusing your lens. And so a storyteller might say, the dog sat outside whining at the door with the harsh wind rustling his fur now a completely you've got it now the minute you say dog you can go okay i got that pull it from the attic dog door got it you know wind wow so i would say that is the main process of bringing alive a ray bradbury chapter to an oral experience the other consideration is the age of the audience or the location of the audience in a room of second graders. What part of this story can they do so that we can get that character development arc into them? Of course, a a room full of Ray Bradbury podcasters. You are going to do every delicious detail. In fact, you're going to have favorite details that you're going to be like, you left that out. So you have to know your audience and you make your selections accordingly. And as you're performing, presumably you're you're looking for eye contact and response from the audience. So if you have to do this kind of thing over Zoom, as we're doing this now, do do you feel that you've lost something there? I was afraid that I would feel that way, but I don't. And this is Ray Bradbury helping me. The beginning of the pandemic, I had been invited to come to a Franciscan community, which I'm very dedicated to those elders. And they called and said, would you still come? But we're going to put you in the room, the performance room, without the seniors because we have closed circuit TV. 
we'll check your temperature at the door. And this was March 20th. So we were just waking up to what was happening. So I went and temperature and in the room and doors closed. And oh, actually just before the doors closed, my greeter and host pointed to this eye on the wall. It was this massive, well, massive. See, I am a storyteller. It was, uh, we're on a podcast, Megan, be clear, about 10 to 12 inches round, because now I'm trying to see it on the wall in the distance between me and the eye. Glass eye, clear dome, but behind it, gray and black. Literally looked like the creature from the foghorn. And I was like, oh, there you are. I've got to tell stories to the eye on the wall. So I'm running these stories and all of a sudden I looked back up the eye. The time's ticking where I'm going to have to go. I'm looking up at the eye. And I know that that creature has swum up from the deep in the dark. And it's hungry and lonely. And suddenly that closed circuit scary thing is this beautiful eye looking at me, longing. And so then I realized that all the elders were on the other side. And it, my relationship with Zoom, all of that is infused by that initial moment that this little green light is, is a bridge, really. I know everyone's out there. I think that may be easier in those of us who've been telling stories for a long time because I've got years of response inside my imagination. So that comes to my rescue. Is is it an inner laugh track? I don't know what you want to call it, but that's there. So I'm not as, I'm not lost without the response. I'm lonelier without the response. And we don't get to play in that creative improv quite the same. I'm improvising imaginally through the eye. And uh, it's different, but I'm not totally upset about it. You're right. It's a different thing. It strikes me that it's the same kind of faith that a TV presenter has to have, or a newscaster, because they're talking to a camera and they have to envisage somebody watching back in a way although they're helped because they they have an auto cue or a teleprompter so that draws their eye whereas you don't have that you've got to provide the confidence yourself I think yeah that's fascinating that's a great um is that a simile uh probably it was yeah yeah. (laughs) or if I was Ray I would call it a metaphor yes yes (laughs) you've mentioned a, a couple of pieces of Bradbury work there but what is the um and you've shown me your folder with with all the printouts in what is the extent of your Bradbury repertoire are there particular books or stories that you specialize in I've mostly been in love with dandelion line bringing those chapters up to the ear is like food Uh, the chapter of Lavinia Nebs and the ravine the chapter of Helen Loomis Lime Vanilla Ice Cream, the Alive chapter, right from the beginning of the book. Mm, Bees of the world humming under its breath. 
Royal Crown, Cream Sponge, Para Lightfoot, Tennis Shoes. Each chapter is so beautiful and gets more beautiful as I age. Something Wicked This Way Comes, of course, is absolutely riveting storytelling. Mr. Dark in the library. Boys! Come out, come out. Fahrenheit 451, which we just read as a readathon for, for the 100th year, was a pleasure to burn. And then just working through your short stories, the gift. Foghorn. Wow. I had the pleasure of doing Foghorn as a tandem storytelling with Bill Oberst Jr. He came up for our festival and he did the old lighthouse man and I did the new lighthouse man and uh, that was so fun to do in tandem. We hadn't had a whole lot of time to practice it so it really wasn't a theater piece. He knew his side of it and I knew my side of it so we were telling our side to each other then the microphone in that Genesee theater was so good I just you know, I just like leaned in and made this, you know, and that was so fun. Bless me, Father, I have sinned is a short story about the wonderful trick of forgiveness. Calling Mexico, also from Dandelion One. I think that's what I've got. So those are all in my head. So I can pretty much warm them up a little bit and then tell. Oh, the gift. Oh, yes. Uh, you mentioned The Gift. Yeah. That one, I and mean, that's quite a short story, isn't it? It is but it's quite got a, a short story. It's got a really nice reveal at the end, which we, we probably shouldn't say what it is at this point. Yeah. No, right. That's right. You have to read it. Are there any particular characters that you like bringing to life? Is, is that part of the, the process? Oh, I have to be honest with you, Phil. It's a little hard for me to pick. I love them all. I really love them all. And that's Ray. Do you find yourself drawn to, say, female characters because they're closer to you, or no, does that no. not come into it? No, and that's pretty much true all over my storytelling. I'm, I'm a gender-fluid storyteller. <laughs> I love the male parts just as much as I love the female parts. Douglas and a lot, all the Douglas pieces, the young boy. I do get asked a lot to do. Lime Vanilla Ice, Helen Loomis, the piece that you saw at the Levy Center YouTube. And I tandem told that one with my colleague Jim May. And that's been wonderful. We've traveled that around the storytelling festivals. People are always just like back in their chairs. What was that? Yeah. Bray Bradbury. Pick up a book. <laughs> like Helen Loomis is quite a wonderful character. Have you ever done that one, I forget what it's called, but in Dandelion Wine, there's an old man who recalls the Civil War, I think it is. The Time Machine. The Time Machine, yeah. I haven't done it yet. I just tackled uh, Calling Mexico. But no, that's on the list. That's a great chapter, isn't it? I'm with you. It's really hard to pick favourites because they're, they all have their strengths. Yeah. They really yeah. do. Now, a few weeks ago, I took part in a Dandelion readathon, which was out of Waukegan. Were you part of that as well? 
I was. I thought you were, yeah. But there were so many people came on the screen. I lost track of who was who. Are there any other events like that that you were involved with? Well, the one we just did with the um, National Readathon, they decided to do Fahrenheit 451. So I read an early chapter and then a later chapter. Tell me about your, your own origins with Bradbury. Can you remember the first of his stories that you ever read? Mine was Dandelion Wine. It was Dandelion Wine. So of course I stay very close there. I grew up with three brothers so I was very much another brother. So I grew up a boy in Des Plaines, Illinois, which was not unlike Waukegan. In fact, I, until I was five, we were in Lindenhurst, and our downtown destination was Waukegan. I played in creeks and climbed trees, and my brother climbed the water tower, and we were on bikes racing each other, and we told stories about the woman who had been hit by the train, and would go Halloween night and wait to see if she would walk like a ghost there on those train tracks. And so when I read Dandelion Wine, was I, I'm trying to remember, 12 or 13, Phil, I was a bookophile. Is that the right way to say that? I just entered in and didn't come out till it was done. And of course, there were things that were intriguing that I didn't understand at all which now at 60, I'm reading the book again, going in and not blinking till I come out and understanding a whole nother layer of the characters from a different perspective. So that book is very near and dear to my heart. I, you know, I was thinking about how to sum it up. And I think it's, for me, that book is appreciation. I know it's analyzed as being nostalgic but nostalgia is appreciation. And so it increases my feeling of appreciation whenever I read it. I kind of come out and the world is wonderful. If I had to take away all of your Bradbury and just leave you with one item that you could keep, what would you choose? Would that be dandelion wine again? Well, I'd be mad at you. <laughs> <laughs> but you've got it all in your head. You've memorised all yes, these stories. Yes, that's true. That's true. That's true. So I could let you take my dandelion line because I know it. That's true. So you wouldn't really be able to take it away from me. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> I'll keep his collected works. <laughs> I know that's cheating. Which one would you keep? Well, if I could have a book, it would be The Golden Apples of the Sun. One of the good things about that book is that the first time I read it, when I was about 12, I only understood about half the stories. And the other half literally didn't do anything for me. But as time went on, I sort of knew more about the world and some of those other stories began to make sense. So if I go to that book now, I can, as well as reading the stories I love, I can also look at the ones that I, I didn't particularly care for first time round. Yeah. And now I can try and enjoy them again. You know, it's called having your cake and eating it. Yes, fabulous. <laughs> I wanted to ask you what you thought of the concept behind Fahrenheit 451. The idea is that people memorise books so that it doesn't matter if books are burned anymore because these book people have got the book in their head. Does that concept make any sense to you as a, as a storyteller? It does. At some point in the near distant past, we did 
uh, Ray Bradbury Storytelling Festival, our theme was Fahrenheit 451. It was the book of the year for the schools. And as storytellers, we were all working on pieces for that. And it struck us in the green room at the Genesee Theater. We just, it just really struck us. We just sat back and we realized that we were doing what Ray had advised to protect against the pruning of human wisdom for the goal of what? I'm not sure, control or whatever. So yes, I think, I think we're very much being those book people, keeping it alive. Uh, my daughters can just automatically recite various sections of various books that we grew up and I would read them aloud, but then I would tell them aloud. I love that Ray got obsessed by that. That's a terrific novel. If I were critical of his writing at all, there are times I get critical in Fahrenheit 451. We were talking about six metaphors in one paragraph thing. Where it's a little dense, but I think I've become impatient as a storyteller. It's a powerful thing to memorize a book. Or even a chapter. It deepens in you when you do. It just deepens in you. And I think apart from actors, very few people have ever attempted doing anything like that. I, th I think the closest most of us come is sort of learning the words of a song. Somehow when there's music, we can retain it, but otherwise we struggle, I think. Yes. So it's a great, it's, great gift to be able to do it. It's simply a muscle. People will... I, I take it for granted. It's just what I do, but people... One of the you know, most frequent comments after any performance is, how did you learn all about art? For me, it's like, well, that's just the beginning of what we have to do. But I've been doing it. I've been memorizing since my first theater show, you know, 12 or 13, same age. So it's a muscle. It's not something you have or you don't have. It's if you use it, it gets stronger. And I think we would all benefit again from memorizing literature rather than, you know, we still memorize our multiplication tables, but not even that so much, do we? I mean, our children don't have to memorize the multiplication table anymore. Do they memorize the chemical? What do they call it? What's that called? You know what that's called? The periodic table. There's very little that they have to memorize anymore. It deepens when it's in your memory. Memory isn't just nice to have. It's necessary for wisdom. I'm a teacher. It's fun I, fundamental yeah. to everything. <laughs> yeah. What do you teach, Phil? Oh, I teach filmmaking. Fabulous. So I have a bit of fun when I'm teaching. <laughs> oh, my God, yes. <laughs> um, we, we should say that you, it's not just Bradbury that you do, is it? Yeah, but don't tell Ray. <laughs> So I do uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula as a, it's, well, it's longer than 90 minutes. It's about 110, I think. And I do that every Halloween at the Woodstock Opera House. So people get to hear Dracula told rather than reading the book. And that's a transportive experience for them. A lot of ghost stories, of course, are literary. So Dr. Jekyll and Hyde, some things from The Once and Future King, a lot of Oscar Wilde, The Canterville Ghost is a great novella that adapts itself into a, it's about an hour, telling it as a 
storytelling experience. Oh, of course, L. Frank Baum's Wizard of Oz makes great storytelling. Alice in Wonderland is another piece I do. I've got a list on the website. I should look up my own website and tell you what I know. So that's the literary telling. And then I do folk tales, fairy tales, mythology, personal stories. I've been doing Florence Nightingale quite a bit in full Florence Nightingale historical dress. Her birthday, May 12th, was the anniversary of her 200th, like we're celebrating Ray's 100th. What do you use as the source for that? I read everything I could find because, of course, I'm you know a book eater. But the good one is Mark Bostridge, B-O-S-T-R-I-D-G-E. Very, very good. Very fat and uh, even-handed. She wasn't the lady of the lamp. No, she was quite clipped and quite fierce, actually. So that's been great to bring a three-dimensional woman alive rather than a, a sentimentalized nice nurse. Well, she, she more or less invented statistics, didn't she? She was an early adopter. She was a part of that crew. I believe she did uh, really master the coxcomb, the pie chart, um, ideation to actual practical usage in her report to the parliament about the Crimean War. 365 pages. I could see the men in parliament on the commission falling asleep at page three or wanting their brandy. You know, so she saw how statistics got it done and actually cut away story and got to the facts really well. What was actually happening as opposed to what people were telling each other what was happening. Um, But she did it mostly from her bed or her desk. She was invalided after the Crimean War. So I didn't know that. uh, I know, right? I didn't either. From 35, when she got back from that, brucellosis, which is a bacteria, no antibiotics. She was invalided, really, for the next 35 years. And then she got a little bit better. So she did the bulk of change to the British military. And uh, St. Thomas Hospital created the Florence Nightingale School for Nursing, which was, of course, an abysmal failure repeatedly until it finally uh, got straightened out. Pen, pen and paper. She wrote it down. She was a writer. She was a nurse in the Crimean War for two years. That's the image, isn't it? It's Yeah. There was a film, wasn't there? There was a, I think, Anna Neagle, a British actress. Yes, yes. And that was the image of the lady with the lamp walking around the woods. (laughs) And when I tell her, I let Florence be a little miffed about that. Lady with the lamp. You know, she's like, mm-mm, uh-uh. They merchandised her. One of the early successful merchandisings. Little Florence Nightingale statues with the lamp. Of course, they it was the wrong lamp. They gave her a little Aladdin lamp, and it wasn't that at all. It was the Turkish accordion lamp. And it just went out. And it brought all this money into the Florence Nightingale Fund. Massive donations into the Florence Nightingale Fund. So that was the benefit of that merchandising. <laughs> Oh, well, at least there was a positive side to that. <laughs> That's fascinating. If I ever do a Florence Nightingale podcast, I must get you on. <laughs> You'll know who to call. If our listeners would like to find out more about your work, where is a good place for them to look? It would be meganwells.com, M-E-G-A-N-W-E-L-L-S.com, meganwells.com. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for this opportunity to talk together. I, it's definitely a, a kinship 
those of us who love Ray, because it's, it's, we project that we now know the stories and the images inside each other's heads, and probably we do. My thanks once again to Megan Wells for joining me on the podcast today. On my website, bradburymedia.co.uk, you'll find the show notes, and in there you'll find links to Megan's website and Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and please join me next time for another Bradbury 100. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols in collaboration with the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe to the podcast using your podcast app. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, SoundCloud and all good podcast places. And you can find us on Facebook too. For more information, head to bradburymedia.co.uk.